to another episode of Sacred Cinema with me, your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, recorded in the studios of 2XX FM, People Powered Radio. And on today's show, we're having a look at movies depicting manhunts. Okay, I want you to think back now. Back to your earlier days, think back to primary school, elementary school, if you're one of our uh, friends from the United States. Um, maybe you were about eight years old, let's say, and uh, one of the cooler kids in class has decided uh, that he would like to or she would like to discourage you from, from trying to be their friend and gets the rest of their posse to maybe, uh, what was the word used, to gang up, to gang up on you and maybe... Uh, Put you in the corner there on the playground, make you feel like you didn't have anyone to turn to, didn't have any friends. Or maybe you were that bully. Maybe you saw someone and you're just like, you know, I'm so sick of that person. Such a loser. Such a whiny little fiend. I'm gonna I'm gonna make them feel like they can never be friends with someone else again. I wanna put them out of everyone's purview. Let's get rid of this guy, right? That's sort of what we're talking about today. We're talking about the idea of the manhunt, the gang up. You know, it was very often a gang, and maybe it's through an official government organization, but very often it's a big group of people, perhaps an angry mob. If you've watched The Simpsons, that does come up a lot with you know a big group of people who target a, a specific individual. They may be public enemy number one. This big group, this big gang, maybe they, they, get, they get their pitchforks and they light their torches on fire and go after them and make sure to find them and, and capture them and do something, either you know kill them or send them to jail or something like that. that. That kind of mob mentality that human beings tend to have and when we attribute it to a human being rather than an animal, right? Because we're talking about, let's, let's talk about the sort of the language that we're using today. Hunting, right? Man hunting. Where does this come from? Well, the idea of hunting is as old as human beings themselves, right? Uh, we, we've always done it. It's something very primal, very animalistic. It's at our core. We, we've always needed to do it in order to acquire meat and protein and, and food and that sort of thing. Obviously, our vegetarian listeners don't do that sort of thing, but it, you must admit that it's something that human beings have done for a very long time. So man hunting is sort of like incorporating those instincts, those urges that we have, th- those things that are very intuitive to us and attributing it to another human being. It's almost almost to animalize, right? To, to make an animal of a human being, to treat them like some kind of elusive creature that's a target that we need to tame and slay and kill. Um, you know, uh, uh, human beings are often considered to be the most dangerous game. And there's actually a very famous uh, short story, The Most Dangerous Game, or other, otherwise known as The Hounds of Zaroff, which was written by Richard Connell, which which actually gets into this sort of business where um, this uh, this sailor, I think, from America, from from New York, um, falls out of his boat and, and finds himself on this abandoned, or what he thinks is an abandoned island. And there's this Russian aristocrat there, Zaroff, who who says to him that you can you can live if you can survive. Um, essentially, I think it's like 24 hours on this island without me hunting you down and killing you. I've I've killed every big game animal there is, and I, I like killing humans now. It's the only thing that's left that it makes me feel alive. So it's almost like this idea that if we can slay and kill a human, if we can track a human down. 
we feel like we can really track anything down. We really feel like we're at the top of the food chain. And there's no shortage of examples throughout history that have engaged in this sort of um, these sort of practices as well. Obviously, going back to saying like the Salem witch trials and witch hunts and things like that, you know, we'd pick particular people and say that the reason why we're incurring so much suffering as a people is because of you, because of your witchcraft, because of something like that. It makes things very easy for us if we can attribute all of the wrong or all, all, all the all the difficulty that we're undergoing to one person say well once we kill them once we capture them and kill them it's all going to be over obviously the same thing sort of happening later in history i mean if we're talking about uh, witch hunts and, and witch trials we we can't not mention uh, the crucible by arthur miller which is obviously um written in the context of mccarthyism and and communism in the in the West and that sort of thing and the idea of blacklisting and, and, and you know sniffing people out, finding listening in on people. Obviously, it's happening all over the world throughout the 20th century. You know whether it's the Secret Service or the um, you know you know Soviet Union or or whatever it is. You know people trying to sniff out dissidents, um, dissidents I should say, uh, trying to find out people that are opposing. Um, the, the hegemonic rule. Let's let's find them. Let's 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 get them. If, if these individual people can be sought out and found, we can set the record straight. We can make sure that the system operates perfectly once that's done. And I suppose uh, it is worth mentioning that uh, in the current cultural climate, something like uh, cancel culture could be, you could say, has a bit of a manhunt feel to it. Um, and, and people have said that. Obviously, um, when Me Too was going on, some people called it a bit of a witch hunt. But I think what's interesting about Me Too, for example, specifically when you think about um, that documentary that got made, I think it was called The Hunting Ground uh, a couple of years ago, that in which direction is this manhunt actually going, right? We could we could say that these uh, that a lot of the, 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 the women or people who uh, claim to be victims are, are manhunting or hunting down the, 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 the perpetrators, but equally we could say that the perpetrators themselves are the hunters because they're hunting down people um, and, 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 and then committing crimes and, and, and terrible acts and things like that. So I think it's really important for in, throughout today's conversation to always keep in mind in which direction is the hunt actually happening? And I think it's really important to note that in this film, in these films specifically, there's already there's already always numerous uh, man hunts taking place simultaneously. So it's always something to think about in all of these. So very often it's the case that you know an organ- police organization or a formal organization or a group of people are hunting someone down, part, part, probably because that person is hunting someone down to kill or to murder or that, or that sort of thing. And we've also always got a question, um, you know, in which direction is the power transfer? And it's something that we always like to talk about on this show. Obviously, there's a million films that talk about this sort of thing. I, was, I have spent so long this week trying to figure out which three films to talk about. At one point, I was going to talk about four films, uh, and then I thought, no, three films is better um obviously you know if we're talking about you know frankenstein the 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 cinematic depiction of frankenstein has that famous um mob scene that's been appropriated in lots of um films since i really wanted to do night of the hunter um the charles lawton film i think we're just going to leave that and do it on another for another episode because i think there's just so much more to talk about with that one um so and there's a lot going on that one and and i also should say as i say like in every every show uh, these films should not be limited to just the concept of manhunting that sort of thing obviously there's a lot going on in each of these films but i I just wanted to look at them through the lens of the manhunted and what they say about that sort of thing so the first film we're going to have a look at is Michael Mann's film. Uh, if we're going to talk about Manhunter, we've got to talk about Michael Mann and his own Manhunt, which was the film Manhunter from 1986. And we're going to look at that one uh, sort of through the lens of wh- why do we Manhunt? What is the urge? Where does it come from? What are we trying to achieve when we're, we hunt someone down? 
you know, in terms of our psyche and, and any, what sort of catharsis are we chasing? And then we're going to move on to the 1993 film uh, directed by Andrew Davis, starring Harrison Ford, known as The Fugitive. And there we're sort of going to start having a look at, well, what are some of the dangers of the manhunt, right? We understand that there, there's some intuitive urges that, that drive us to, to, to hunt people down, but maybe we need to put those urges aside sometimes and, and you know, employ a bit more rationality. And also, are we, are we actually going to achieve justice if we catch someone? You know, to what extent are we actually going to achieve justice when we finally do hunt someone down and get them? And then from there, we're going to build on those ideas uh, in the 1920 German expressionist film, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Um, directed by Robert Vienne. And uh, if you're a big fan of that film, you might be thinking that's an interesting one to talk about this week. But obviously there is uh, some very clear manhunting in that one um, from from all involved. So uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about that one. It's a big favorite of mine. But let's get into this first one here. Michael Mann's 1986 film, Manhunter. So if you haven't seen this one, it does star William Patterson and he is portraying uh, um, a detective, Will Graham. And he's tasked with finding a serial killer. Now, I think it's really important uh, for the purpose of today's discussion that we mention the serial killer is uh, colloquially named the Tooth Fairy. And I want to talk about this one in the context of what it says about our urge. Why do we try and trap people down? Throughout the film, when you're watching it, you know, and and not just this film, but when you watch any kind of dark um, detective crime thriller of this period, whether it be this one or fast-forwarding through some of David Finch's work, watching uh, something like Zodiac or um, Seven, I feel that intuitively uh, we get this sense of dread that this person is off to do something horrible, right? That, that we need to catch them quickly because if we don't get them, we're going to feel responsible for anything further that might take place. Um, and, and all the, the evils that this person um, may perpetuate and, and the, we feel that we're perpetuating them by allowing them to do it, by not working harder. And then there, there is this very serious um, time uh, limit. Time is of the essence throughout this film. Um, the detectives realize that the Tooth Fairy is operating on a lunar uh, calendar basis, right? And they know that the next full moon or whatever, the next waxing crescent moon or whatever it may be, he's going to attack. And they, there's almost this point in the film where there's a, a bit of uh, lethargy uh, and they say, well, look, this is too difficult to figure out. Let's leave it. We know, we'll know that he's going to do it again, then we'll use that next murder as our next piece of evidence. So that they're constantly dealing with time and responsibility and this idea that, that we know there's an inevitability about this. Do we want to use that to our advantage or does it also fire us, fuel us to, to, to work quicker and harder to make sure it doesn't happen? So I think uh, 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 so putting that more succinctly, a big part of why we want to hunt people down is because we want to protect the innocent. We know that if we don't do something now, there are going to be innocent people that aren't us that are going to suffer. And I think there's particularly three symbols that I want to talk about with respect to this film that, I, that, that lift up that idea. The first is the name of the serial killer being the Tooth Fairy. There's, there's an irony about that. It is quite creepy to think of this guy being called the Tooth Fairy. And we see with the opening scene, he sort of creeps into this bedroom in the middle of the night. Um, to, to, to murder these people. A bit like when you're a child and you're waiting for the Tooth Fairy. There was saying sort of eerie. People do sort of get these fears and phobias of things like the Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus. The idea of someone coming into your room in the middle of the night when you're at your most vulnerable, like when you're asleep, when your eyes are closed. And that and the idea of sight and awareness is a huge motif in this film. And I, and I won't have time to go through it. But if you do go and see this film, please keep your ears open for all the mentions of sight and awareness and, and, and that sort of thing. There's plenty of them. But, but when we're asleep, our eyes are closed. We're, we're not conscious. 
Uh, it is our most vulnerable state. So I think the idea that he attacks people in their sleep, uh, and also you know, he's called the tooth fairy because of these bite marks, but the idea that you're able to get that intimate with a person you're about to kill, that you're able to bite them, uh, that you're able to, get, able to get right up to their head um, lying on their pillow, and in the same way that a tooth fairy is able to you know, slip the coins and the money under your pillow, that this guy's able to strangle you or grab you from you just in your most comfortable um, and most, what we often think to be our most secure places under our big blanket. You know, the fact that he's able to do that is is very symbolic of this idea that that people are truly innocent when they're attacked by these people. And that, and that really does fuel us to do uh, something about it ourselves because if someone is that vulnerable, they aren't obviously going to be able to defend, them, defend themselves. The next thing I want to talk about um, is the fact that the, the, the victim or the... What do you, not, not the pros, the, the prospective victim throughout this film um, is uh, a character named Reba who is literally blind, right? So we get this idea is like people who are the prospective victims of these evil people are effectively blind. They can't see what's going on. And I did mention I want to talk about I wanted to talk about the film Night of the Hunter. That's clearly a big element of that film as well. The idea that when people are going to do the wrong thing, they don't want to herald it. They don't want to signify to the world that they're about to commit a terrible atrocity because then that people are going to run away. Uh, it's going to make them harder to do their job. So that's the other thing that, that really fuels us to want to find these people because, because the, we know that the people that they're trying to kill have no idea that they're trying to be, that they're going to be killed. They're, they're effectively blind to it. They're asleep or they're blind or something like that. And then we also have this interesting symbol, uh, sort of uh, symbol that bookmarks the film um, that Graham is um, trying to set up this, I think it's like a turtle hatchery. He lives by the beach and he's helping his, him and his kid are uh, trying to build this turtle hatchery. And if you've ever actually, this is really tapping to the, the um, collective unconscious here, I, I think. Um, but if you've ever actually, I've, I've been fortunate enough to um, go to two turtle hatcheries in my life, one in Borneo and one in Costa Rica. And I'm only a young guy, but I've been very fortunate enough to do that. Um, there, there's such a feeling uh, of, of want that these little guys can make it, right? When, when it, Of all the baby animals in the world, the baby turtle is the perfect symbol for wanting it to survive, for feeling that it's powerless, right? They are so they, so, they have no way of defending themselves. They're so small. They're so slow across the sand. And when they get into the waves, they're battling against these tiny waves that they can't really fight through. And then there's sharks and there's fish and there's seagulls and everything like that that could possibly eat them. So that's another sort of symbol that we're talking about. The reason why we care so much about making sure that we're stopping bad people from doing bad things is because they're effectively, you know, going after the baby turtles of the world. These these cute little innocent things that have no means of defending themselves. So that's definitely the idea that's lifted up a lot through Manhunter is that this sense of unawareness that victims have toward bad people. And if we don't step up and take responsibility, we're going to feel that, uh, you know, we're going to feel a sense of horror that, that, that we let terrible things happen. So maybe in thinking about that, we've lifted up some, we've, we've got some juices flowing inside your belly and you're feeling like, oh God, I've got to go out and help some people. I've got to go find these evil people in the world. But does that ever go too far? Do we ever let that animalistic part of us, that intuitive part of us that wants to protect the innocent, do we ever let that actually inhibit us? from achieving justice at large. And at this point in the conversation, I think it makes sense to move on to our next film, which is the 1993 film directed by Andrew Davis, um, known as The Fugitive, starring Harrison Ford. Now, if you don't know much about the film, it was based on the uh, television series from the 1960s. Uh, and Harrison Ford plays Dr. Richard Kimball, who is accused and actually sentenced to death for the murder of his wife. Now, he claims, and it's not, uh, throughout the film, we're not sort of umming and ahhing about whether he actually did it or not, but he claims that the person that actually murdered his wife was this nameless one-armed man and we might get into that in a little bit more detail in just a second but what's important um 
is that uh, he's, on, he's on the bus going to prison and uh, it crashes and him and this other criminal break free. And then Tommy Lee Jones is the one that's tasked with finding them both and, 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 and capturing them and that sort of thing. Um, so the first aspect of this, film, I want to talk about two aspects of this film. The first is Tommy Lee Jones's character and how he'll stop at nothing to catch Harrison Ford to the point that he's actually ambivalent about Harrison Ford's innocence, which is... And the implication of that is that he's actually ambivalent about achieving justice at large. And we actually hear that just straight up in the dialogue, that famous scene where Tommy Lee Jones finds Harrison Ford and he says, listen, I didn't actually do anything. And Tommy Jones looks at him in the eyes and just says, I don't care. So he doesn't really have much of a, he doesn't really value the sanctity of human freedom or or the sanctity for for life um, to that matter. I think there's a really interesting uh, and quite symbolic scene where um, the other other fugitive is captured and uh, one of Tommy Lee Jones's colleagues has got him in a headlock and he's holding him and Tommy Lee Jones has the shot ready and the colleague saying no, no don't don't shoot him my head's right next to him if you miss I'll die uh, but nevertheless Tommy Lee Jones takes the shot and, and does get the fugitive but there's this very awkward interaction afterwards where he says why you know why did you do that I could have been shot again we, we get this idea that Tommy Lee Jones will stop at nothing right his animalistic li- um, side of him is absolutely enlivened what's important to him is that he captures these people he's a professional manhunter his entire purpose in life is to catch people and put them away and as the viewer we have this sort of dreadful relationship with him because even though he's only doing his job and he's trying to uphold, um, you know, his his reputation as a professional, uh, let's call him man hunter, um, we know that if he actually does his job correctly, if he if he does find Harrison Ford, then justice won't be served, right? By hunting down this man and capturing this man, he won't actually be able to achieve justice for society at large. So so that's one part of it. But let's let's look at Harrison Ford's character as well, because I feel like the same thing's going on in his character, even though he feels like he knows that it's the one armed man. There is this sense that even once he captures him and proves to the police that he's he's innocent, that or, or proves that the one armed man is the one that's responsible for this murder, that we won't really find this, we won't really achieve this sense of catharsis. And I think part of that is to do with with the the characterization of this guy, right? The one armed man, right? I think there's something going on there. That the reason why this guy is a one armed man, it lifts up these ideas of incompleteness. Like, how could you actually complete a murder all on your own with just one arm? I don't, I don't mean to say, you know, you know, anyone that lives with only one arm that they can't, you know, achieve their dreams if it is to murder someone. But what, what I am trying to say is that, that, that I think in, in terms of metaphor, the, the metaphorical value of that character is that it seems that once Harrison Ford captures this guy or, or claiming that a one-armed man did it, there's this sense of unbelievability. That What, what do you think, Harrison Ford, that you've, you've tied this thing up in a night, nice, neat little package by saying that the one-armed man did it, right? Like, clearly there's more going on. You don't even know who this guy is, right? It, 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 there is this sense that once this guy gets captured, things won't be sorted out. And that ends up being the case, that when they actually track down this one-armed man, they find out that Harrison Ford actually finds out that he's already been questioned by the police and was found to be innocent. That's not to say he is completely innocent, but it is to say, and it is the, in, in reality, it does become the fact, it does become the case that the one-armed man is not the only person involved. There are broader elements at play. So I think whether you're looking at Tommy Lee Jones' character or Harrison Ford's character, one of the tragedies of the manhunt is that we can sort of lump all of our worries. In the same way that we're talking about with witch hunts before, we can sort of say that all of the suffering, all of the um, uh, the, all of the, the terrible elements can be lumped on and uh, on one individual. That if we say that this one individual is the one that's truly and ultimately accountable, then all of our worries will 
will go away once they're captured and hunted down and found, which is not necessarily the case. There's already there's always some broader elements at play, and I think we can build on that very nicely if we move on to our third and final film for today's discussion, which is The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, directed by Robert Vienna, uh, and it came out in 1920. So if you listen to the show a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, The Golem, how he came into the world, which is another German expressionist film. And this one's sort of similar. Um, this one also has, uh, I mean, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, essentially a sort of a gothic vibe. I mean, um, this film was obviously, a, it was, sorry, I keep saying obviously, was actually um, a big influence on a lot of directors like Tim Burton. And you can see that in a lot of the cinematography uh, and especially in a lot of the um, the production design, but also uh, the makeup. And I'll talk about that in just in a little bit. Um, but you've got these real, you've got a lot of slender, shadowy imagery. I think the Golem uh, it had a lot more, there was a lot more curvature to it, perhaps. Um, it was sort of windy and whirly in a way. This one has a little bit more, uh, there's, a, there's a jaggedness to a lot of the shadows and uh, a lot of the, the you know, the, the big stripes that run up and down the screen. And I'm not sure how that informs the themes so much. I mean, you could say that there's a sort of uh, a rigidity to some of the... Um, the personalities in the film, but it is important to distinguish the two. I mean, they, they come from the same period and they have a lot of the same sort of substance in a way, uh, sorry, some of the same cine, uh, cinematic uh, elements, um, but maybe a little bit different uh, in terms of their thematic substance. But let's get into the actual plot uh, for all those that haven't actually seen the film or, or want a bit of a refresher. Uh, we start out on a park bench uh, with one of, our, one of our main protagonists, Francis, and he's talking to this old man and he's telling this old man that, um, he and his fiance have just undergone the most horrific and onerous of experiences, and 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 he proceeds to tell the story of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And uh, essentially, you know, there's a lot to this one, but basically, there's this guy, Dr. Caligari, who's this hypnotist that comes to town, and he has this this coffin, this cabinet thing, and inside is this man. Uh, and he's, for all intents and purposes, uh, like this this slave. Now, everyone just sees them as just like a circus act. But what's actually going on is this hypnotist, uh, Dr. Caligari, is brainwashing Cesare and, and making him go out into the town in the middle of the night and go and murder people. Now, obviously, uh, this is a bit of an allegory, um, a bit of a commentary on what was going on in history around this time. Obviously, this is just after the First World War. And it's lifting up a lot of ideas about agency and responsibility and influence and, and the power of authority or authoritarian government. You know, people are trying to, they're responding to the idea that um, so many young men and, and women went off to the battlefields of World War One, and, 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 and they had no interest in killing people throughout most of their lives, but they went out there and did the most horrific of, a, horrific of acts. And, and so people are trying to come to terms with that. How does that happen? Or, or at least trying to, not necessarily come to terms, but trying to uh, alarm everyone that, that human beings are susceptible to this kind of control and influence. And I think that's obviously a very universal, or that's an idea that's universally applicable. And I actually think we could talk about this film uh, for, for any given theme or we can talk about this film every week but I think it's particularly significant when we're talking about manhunts and the idea that we can, we're so susceptible um, to, to feeling like we should go after certain people or so susceptible to doing things that make people feel uh, like they should go after us right so let's get back into the plot just just briefly so when when the, the townspeople realize that Cesare is the one that's murdering all these people. That's when we get our serious manhunt scene and they, they form this mob and they get the torches going and they chase him around town to try and capture him. And we as the audience feel... Um 
this sense of tragic, uh, dramatic irony, because we know that, yes, he's the one that's actually, you know, inserting the dagger into the backs of these victims, but in reality, it's not really his fault, right? In the same way that in um, The Fugitive, all these people are sure that Harrison Ford is the one that's guilty, we as the audience know that, he, not, not really, right? And it's particularly in this one, it's a little bit more complex because he actually is the person doing it, but we don't feel like he's actually guilty. We want Dr. Caligari put behind um, the, the, the bars, really. We know he's one that's ultimately... Um, ultimately the perpetrator in the same way that we know in the fugitive that the one-armed man is the real perpetrator that's the one we need to get but in the same way as the fugitive there's broader themes going on there are broader elements and it's not until the end of the film that those are actually um, revealed now i don't want to keep going for anyone that hasn't seen the film and wants to watch it because it's one of the best plots ever written um in cinematic history so please it's, it's almost a little bit cliche now but please, please turn it off if you haven't seen the end of the, you haven't seen the end of the film yet but basically, Francis chases Dr. Caligari. He, he seems to be onto this guy, and he notices that he escapes into a mental asylum and finds out that he's actually a doctor in a mental asylum. And by the end of the film, we become aware of the fact that Francis himself is an inmate in that mental asylum and that Dr. Caligari is his doctor, and that this story that he's been telling this old man is actually a story that he is... Well, I want to say... I want to specifically say that he's potentially concocted himself, that he's potentially constructed himself using the faces of the other inmates in the asylum, and that we see that his fiance and Cesare, they're all real people, but they're not actually the people that he's described. They're just other inmates in there, and he's, he's built all these big stories about them, and, and he's constructed this entire world narrative. So, what does that say about today's discussion, right? I guess we started with Manhunter, where we said that, you know, there's quite a noble reason why we want to hunt people down. We want to hold people accountable, because if we don't, we're letting the innocent suffer, right? That's a that's an idea that's an old, as old as the age of time, right? We don't want the innocent to suffer. It doesn't take someone to read uh, Catcher in the Rye to know that that's something that's innate to all people. But when we got onto the fugitive, we realized that if we let those animal urges, if we let those instincts take over, um, those parts of us that really want to get into individual people, to lump on all of the suffering and all, all of the mistreatment and all of the terrible things that go on, on individual people, they're going to come a cropper, that very often the fact that that person isn't actually guilty, or even if we know that they're part of it, they're not the whole story, and we're not going to be able to achieve a, a total sense of justice just by locking them behind bars. There's always some broader themes going on, there's always some, there's always circumstances that we aren't aware of, and when we looked at the doctor of Cal the, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, we looked at that, we, we, we sort of uncover the fact that there is no limit to the breadth of the circumstances that, that surround any given act of, of mistreatment or violence. That, that if we look at any given person, there's always an excuse to be made. We talked about a lot of this, these ideas when we talked about when we did the victimhood weeks. But the idea that once you find your Cesare, you realize that there's a Dr. Caligari. And once you find out that there's a Dr. Caligari, you realize that maybe it's there's more to that than, than it seems. That the, You're always needing to incorporate or assume certain things. You're always needing to implement a very specific framework in order to hold someone accountable. That culpability is always dependent on the on the, the, the rule book that we are utilizing, the one that we're employing. So I shouldn't say utilizing, I should say using. So what does that mean? Do, do we just not hold people accountable anymore? Is it, Should we never justify the manhunt? I don't think that's the case. I think it's more the fact that we need to be aware as human beings, oh, sorry, we need to be conscious of the fact that human beings are not ever completely aware, that we're all necessary, we're all inevitably naive to some extent, and that we need to make sure that we keep, that we maintain our modesty whenever we go out into the 
world and point fingers at other people for doing things that we'll never really truly understand. So that's been Sacred Cinema for this week. I've been your host, Jimmy Bernasconi on 2XX FM, people-powered radio. Thanks so much for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, please uh, get in contact with the show by searching Sacred Cinema with Jimmy Bernasconi on Facebook. Um, if you're interested in providing any feedback, be it positive or negative, we would love to hear it. We'd love to hear any recommendations you have about any future episodes or any movies that you'd like us to take a look at. Um, but until next time, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you again soon.